Well, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, today is an important day in the church, uh, but probably not for the reason you might have guessed this morning. We're not here this morning to celebrate Thanksgiving. We'll leave that to Wednesday when we celebrate as a church on Thanksgiving Eve and Thursday when you celebrate as a family, thanking God for all of the gifts that he's given to you. We are also not jumping in early to the celebration of Christmas and Advent, despite what the giving trees out in the narthex might say. This is actually the last Sunday in the church here. Then next week, when we gather, everything will be changed as we move into the season of Advent and we begin to celebrate the coming of Christ. But today, during the last season, the last church year, last day of the church year, uh, we call it sometimes Christ the King Sunday, and this is what may make today seem a little odd. When most of us think of kings, the picture we've got in our head is a picture that is coming to us from the TV, whether it is the monarchy in Great Britain, or it is a picture of the monarchy that you know Disney, some Disney movie has given to us. And so when we think of kings, we think most often of thrones, we think of crowns of gold studded with jewels, we think of robes and fancy clothes. And yet today we have a, a picture that is very different in our gospel reading. It's almost, you could say, a mockery of monarchy. Jesus hanging on the cross with a sign above his head, with the words printed, this is the king of the Jews. There's no fancy robes. Jesus hangs naked and bloody from the cross. There's no crown that anybody could desire. Instead, it's just a crown of thorns. And yet it's here in this moment of suffering and sorrow that Jesus' reign as king begins. Now, to see how this moment of suffering is transformed by God, Luke would have us direct our attention to the two criminals, one on either side of Jesus. What we see in both of them are the two common responses to suffering that we experience. The first common response to personal suffering we experience is to rail against God, to say, if you are such a great and loving and powerful God, then why don't you do something? Why don't you fix this mess that I find myself in? But the second and less common response to suffering is an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement that we are sinful. And what that means is that oftentimes the suffering we experience is the suffering that we have brought upon ourselves And then we turn to God, fall on our knees before the King, and pray for his mercy and for his forgiveness. But of the two responses to personal suffering, the first is probably the most common. The world is full of those who rail against God, who in their self-righteousness presume that the creator of the universe is obliged to make their life simple and easy. It's a far more rare response, the one that looks inward, recognizes that we are often at cause of the suffering in our lives and the suffering in the lives of the people around us. 
and asks God for mercy. So as we look at these two criminals and what they have to teach us about Christ, it's worth noting their similarities first. The thing these two men have in common. The first and the obvious, they're both hanging from the cross and they're both hanging there justly. We don't know exactly what their crime was, but we know they're being punished justly under Roman law. The second thing they have in common is that they are both witnessing what is going on there in that moment. They see Jesus between them. They've heard the words that he's spoken. They've those really surprising, shocking words, that, that prayer that Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, directed at the people who are responsible for that pain and suffering that they're experiencing. They see that themselves. The final thing they all have in common, both of them, is that they both desperately want to escape death. And in this way, we share those same commonalities. We all have experience of suffering. Maybe you're suffering now, maybe it's something that's in your past, or it may be something in your future, but we all know what it is to suffer. And because you're here, you have at least heard once the recounting of this moment in history, Jesus on the cross, those words that he spoke, this prayer to his captors, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And one way or another, we all desire an escape, a rescue from death itself. But that's where the similarities end. See, the first criminal, he rails against God. He says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And, you know, of all the things you could say, I can't picture a better example of a more spiritually bereft, destitute person than is captured in that, that one statement. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. See, for this criminal, he doesn't care one bit that he's on that cross justly, suffering the punishment of his deeds. In this moment for him, good and bad don't matter. Right and wrong doesn't matter. He's even willing to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ and accept him as a king if that means that that will get him off the cross. In this moment, he'll take anyone as king that can change the reality of his situation. And to be honest, that's how a whole segment of humanity reacts to personal suffering. Suffering interrupts our plans. It interrupts our agendas and our hopes for tomorrow. And when we can't fix the, the problem of suffering for ourselves, it's in that moment that people begin to turn to God. When all else fails, after all, why not try God? And our response becomes the same as this criminal on the cross. If you're the king, then do something about it. But when we do this, we wind up treating God like I treat my lawnmower. You know, when, when my lawn needs to be mowed, I pull my car out of the garage, I get the mower out of the corner of the garage where it's stowed, I use it as I see fit, 
And then about an hour later when the lawn is finished, I stow the lawnmower back in its corner of the garage where it sits, untouched, unthought of until I need it again. There's so many people that treat God in the same way when it comes to our own experience of personal suffering. When he's needed, then we'll turn to him. Then we'll pull him out of the corner we've stuffed him into. And when he's not, we place him back in that corner. The thief on the cross, this criminal to this one side of Jesus, he only saw him as a possible power, a way of escape from this moment. He didn't see Jesus as a king to be followed. But then there's the other criminal, and this is the one I believe that Luke wants us to direct our attention to. Because he responds very differently. This man hanging to Jesus' other side, he isn't sucked in by the railing of the other man. And for us, we would do good to follow his example. Because there are plenty of people in this world that rail against God. In the midst of suffering, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. God, if you're so good, if you're so loving, if you're so powerful, then why don't you do something about the mess of this world? Why don't you stop the school shootings? Why don't you end the wars that we see, war in Ukraine and the wars that ravage this world? God, if you're so great, why don't you do something? But notice this second criminal doesn't get pulled into that. Instead, he looks inward at himself and he recognizes his own sin. After hearing from his fellow on the cross, his response is simply, we are here justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. Here in this moment, as he too hangs from a cross, he realizes there is no way that he can hide his shame or his sinfulness any longer, and he doesn't try. But there are so many of us that in those moments, when we're laid bare, we do everything we can to pass the buck, to hide our shame and our guilt. And it's nothing new. You go all the way back to the very beginning. This is what Adam did when he was confronted by God with his own sin. Notice in that moment, he doesn't confess, he doesn't fall to his knees before the king of creation and confess his sin. What does he do? God, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Adam tries to push the blame off of himself and on to God. And it's the same for us. It's the response of the kid caught with crumbs around his mouth and an empty cookie jar sitting in the kitchen when his parents confront him, has the temerity to say to mom and dad, it wasn't me, it was the dog. All while the evidence is there staring at him. But this criminal, this, this one, doesn't do that. Instead, he acknowledges, confesses, the reality of his sin and his situation. In this way, he's much like Job, who said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked will I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
There are very few people in the midst of suffering that respond as that, as, as he did. But then this man looks beyond himself and he looks at Jesus and he sees in him one who is suffering unjustly. He sees in Jesus a man who does not deserve to be hanging there on the cross. The other criminal, he couldn't care less about whether Jesus was there for a good reason or not, whether he was innocent or guilty. For the first criminal, as long as Jesus could drive the getaway car, that was all that he cared about. But for us, Jesus doesn't want to just drive the getaway car. He wants to be followed because we see in him the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. And not just the sin of the world, but our sin and our guilt. But upon seeing that, seeing Jesus as he really is, this second criminal does one final thing. He addresses Jesus. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, both thieves, they, both criminals, they wanted to be saved from death. But there is a world of difference in how they respond to Jesus. The first criminal says, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The second says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is an infinite, qualitative difference between save me, spoken as a demand, and save me, spoken as a plea for mercy. And it's there in that moment, this moment of intense suffering and pain, that it is transformed. And Jesus begins his reign from the cross. He begins to do what he will do on that final day as he judges between the righteous and the unrighteous. To the first criminal, the one who demanded salvation in that moment, with mocking lips, to him there is only terrifying silence. There is not one word that Luke records of Jesus replying to that man. Maybe just a pitying glance. But there's no hope, there's no promise. But to the second criminal, Jesus speaks and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the great promise that we hold on to as children of God who have been baptized and adopted into his family. This promise that despite our sin, God has sent Jesus into this world who has paid the penalty for it. And because of that, he's called us and adopted us into his family as sons and daughters of him, the King. So for this reason, today on Christ the King Sunday, this last Sunday of the church year, the day before we look ahead to the celebration of Advent, We praise God for sending Christ the King into our lives. In his name, amen.